I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 3-15. We've been thinking a bit about revitalization these days, and we're going to continue on that here for at least a couple more weeks. The term revival that we have heard here in the service and the scriptures that we've read and uh, we've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks at least, that term will certainly conjure up for uh, many of you images in your mind of, of tent meetings and altar calls and evangelists. And those are the things that I'm not talking about today when I talk about revival. I would, I would say that's more along the lines of revivalism, and, and we could go into a long uh, discussion of Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening and, and uh, all that happened out of that and the impact that it's had in, our, in, in Christianity today. Uh, and I don't think it is a good thing because he was, uh, bluntly, was a heretic. Um, but when I speak of revival here today and what we're uh, hoping for the Lord to give us, I'm using the term as the dictionary does. I looked it up, and uh, here's, here's a couple of definitions. A revival is an improvement in the condition or strength of something. A revival is an instant of something becoming popular, active, or important again. As I said before, we're thinking these days of revitalization, new life, new vigor. Our church needs revitalization. We have been dwindling in numbers for the past 30 years, as I noted last week and of course numbers are are not our focus numbers are symptoms of other things numbers will rise and fall over the course of of any church's life and this church is not a a young church we're in may will be 127 years old not not the building but the church the presbyterian church here in town but as many of you have said to me on numerous occasions the lord has preserved this church through hurricanes and many other difficulties, and we're here. God must have a purpose for our church going forward. I know that you believe that. You've said it to me. No one here believes that the life of this church is near its end, but we need to be revitalized. We need new life and vigor, and and yes, we need more people. Well, last week, My goal was to encourage you with the truth that Jesus has promised to build his church. He is the one who does it and who is doing it worldwide. The church will never perish from the earth because that is what Jesus is doing. He's building his church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Today I want us to look at ourselves, to turn it inward a little bit. Revitalization starts here with us as individuals before we can really grow or bring other people out we need to be revitalized as individuals and today we think about individual renewal and revitalization and this passage from second peter one is a great place to look for guidance in this reading we will learn how to avoid being as it says ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us turn our attention now to God's word. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, there are four things I want you to see today from this text. The divine gift, first of all the Christian's response to that gift, and the difference between success and failure, and then finally, and very briefly, the eternal reward. First, we see here in the first several verses the divine gift, verses 3 through 5. It talks about God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How powerful is God? Well, he's, uh, theologians say he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He has all power at his disposal. And this text tells us that he uses his power to bestow upon sinners such as we are everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that we need for a godly life. He gives us life. He grants us the opportunity and the ability to become godly, to grow in our godliness. And he tells us here that it is through his divine power and that divine power that has given us a knowledge of him, that divine power that has called us to himself, to his own glory and excellence, or by his own glory and excellence. Both are true. He's called us as his people to reflect his glory and excellence and he has opened our eyes so that we could behold his glory and excellence and so be drawn to him. And through that power that he has worked in us who are believers, you know, we have all these wonderful promises of Scripture. Promises that cover us from, from the time that we come to know the Lord for eternity. Wonderful promises of his work in us and for us. And because of what he's doing in us, remember last week I said Jesus builds his church supernaturally. It's an act of God upon, upon our lives that draws us to a, into a relationship with him. We have become, it says here, partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean we become divine. It means that it's been through the, the work of the Holy Spirit you know, the Spirit comes to dwell in believers by faith. And 
And that spirit is working in us to make us more and more like Christ, who, of course, is divine. We share the family resemblance. That's what's supposed to be happening in uh, Christians' lives because of God's power unleashed in our lives. We're born again. We're renewed. We're not the same anymore. We're new creations in Christ. And as we get to know Jesus, he rubs off on us. We should bear the family resemblance. So it's a divine gift. It's all of grace. He didn't have to save us from the corruption of the world and from certain eternal death. But in his great love and mercy and grace, he has sent Christ into the world to do that for sinners such as we are. And he's making us holy. He's transforming us. And one day we'll complete that. And we will not only be free from the as I say many times, from the guilt of sin, from bondage to sin, but one day even from the presence of sin in the new heavens and new earth. This is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners such as we are. And, and this is uh, a, ver- a couple of verses that are telling us how he does that. Now, secondly, we, we see what is our response to it. The first part is important, absolutely 100% important. We're going to see in a moment just how important it is. But how do we respond? He, he begins the verse, verse 5, for this very reason, because of what God has done in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. If we reflect upon all that God has done for us in his grace and mercy and the forgiveness that he has given us in Christ, our response should be to give all zeal to supplementing our faith with virtue, etc., etc., etc. Make every effort. Now, often we... uh, in the Presbyterian Church, in Reformed circles, we, we talk a lot about the gospel and we talk a lot about grasping the gospel and preaching the gospel to ourselves, but there is a part of us that we have to make an effort. We, we need to make every effort to not just believe, but to have virtue. And that word virtue means moral excellence. It's... Uh, it was used by, the Greek word was used by those writers of the day to describe the sum of all desirable character qualities. Christians should be of the highest character in everything. And we should make every effort, not just to believe, but to be virtuous in everything. And not only to be virtuous, but to add knowledge. Now think about that. Or what are you doing as you look at your Christian life, are you seeking to be virtuous in all things? Are you making every effort to be a person of virtue? And how are you adding to your knowledge? Are you seeking to grow in your understanding of God's Word? Are you, or do you read God's Word on a regular basis? Are you involved in Bible studies? Are you faithful to come to church to hear the Word preached? Are you making every effort to exercise self-control in your life? Steadfastness, are you persevering, keeping your hand to the plow? 
even when it gets difficult? And what about godliness? That word there, godliness, is an interesting word. It means, it's a, it's a compound word that means good worship. Good worship. And that means having a life that is, has a Godward focus. All of my life, not just when I come to church on Sunday, but all of my life is an act of worship to him. I'm, I'm showing that he is important to me by living for him. And then brotherly affection. Are we making every effort to love others? Well, these are the, the ways that we're called to respond to God's grace in our life. Because of what he's done for us, we are to make every effort. Now, if we were these kinds of people consistently, people of faith, people of virtue, people who were godly, people who uh, were knowledgeable, self-controlled, and loving, I believe that would make a big difference in our community. Christians are often too much like the world, myself included. We need to be different. We need to grasp the gospel in a deeper way so that we might be inspired to make every effort to be faithful, virtuous, godly, persevering, self-controlled, loving people. And I believe if we are that and we exhibit that in our community, that will draw people. They'll at least ask about it. Why, do you, why are you so different? You've heard many illustrations of that where people are living their lives faithfully for the Lord and people are drawn to that. They're curious about that. And the Bible tells us always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Well, now I want to focus in on the difference between successful success and failure. Verses 8 and 9 are very important in this passage. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to know why we are ineffective and unfruitful in our lives, look no further than verse 8. Because we don't have those qualities. We're not increasing in those qualities. In verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted. Now, I'm nearsighted. I'm, I'm really, really terribly nearsighted. And I can't see a thing without my glasses on. I'm almost blind without my glasses. I'm not legally blind. My mother-in-law is. She is legally blind. And without her glasses, she can't see a thing. But you can be so nearsighted that you can be practically blind and and someone who, has, who is lacking in these qualities is not making every effort is nearsighted so that he is blind. He's forgotten something. And it's very important that we note that. That phrase, he has forgotten. He has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. How do we do that? How do we do that? This is not literally forgetting the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins. I mean, once you know that, you know it, and you're not going to go, oh, you know what, I forgot. I forgot that Jesus died on the cross. That's not what he's talking about. He, he knows that you haven't forgotten what happened in history 2,000 years ago. But what he means here is that someone who has become ineffective and unfruitful in their lives 
they have forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications it has for life. They have, they're not living in light of the truth of the gospel. And here are some ways we do that. I've given you the list. First of all, works. You can divorce verses 1 through 4 from verses 5 through 7. You see, verse 5 states, For this reason, because of the gospel, because of the gospel, we, we then make all diligence. But sometimes people divorce the gospel from making all diligence. They, they apply their willpower and they try to be as good as they can and they make all diligence, but they have forgotten the gospel. And people who do that maintain for a while, but soon they lose their joy, like the people in Galatia. If you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, he asked, what happened to all your joy? And what had happened is that someone had come along, a false teacher, and said, look, you've got to follow all these rules in order to be justified by God. Your salvation is not just grace, it's based on works. And when you live as if your relationship with the Lord is based on your work, then Christianity becomes joyless drudgery. And you'll soon abandon it. You've got to live out of verses 1 through 4. You've got to remember what Christ has done for you and, and, and let that motivate you to make every effort. I make every effort because God has made every effort for me. He has done everything for me. It's by His divine power that He has bestowed upon me salvation. And I am His. It's a free gift. So I want to serve Him in return. So sometimes people get sidetracked by thinking their, their acceptance with God is based on works. They've forgotten that Jesus is the one that has forgiven them of their sins. And then bitterness. Bitterness can creep into someone's life. We've been wronged. Someone sinned against us. And we feed resentment, bitterness, and anger. Well, what have we forgotten? We've forgotten that we have been forgiven. You know, we, Sarah sang the Lord's Prayer. What does it say? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If we forget that we have been forgiven and the amount that we've been forgiven by God, it makes, us very, it makes it very difficult to forgive others. And we can be sidetracked by bitterness and resentment in our lives and become miserable Christians. So bitterness is a, is a pitfall. Worry and fear. Paying more attention to our fears and worries than to Jesus and his glory. You know, there's, there's lots to be concerned about in our lives. You know, there's people, there's circumstances, there's problems all around us. We live in a broken world. And you can get all wrapped up in fear and worry, forgetting what Jesus has done for you. Scriptures tell us if God is for us, who can be against us? Preoccupation with chaos in the world. You know, we've got a lot of chaos going on. And I get really discouraged just by, you know, all the problems that I'm surrounded with. But then you turn on the news now, and it's just a fighting between people constantly. There's constant conflict in our lives today. 
And we can get focused on that and preoccupied with that, forgetting that Jesus, our Savior, is on the throne of the universe. He has a, a plan and a purpose, and, and all of history is, is heading in the direction that, that he wants it to. It's going to have the, the conclusion that you read about in Scripture. We know what's going to happen. We have an eternal hope. We don't have to worry about these things and, and, and get consumed with them that we lose our faith in, in the Lord. So worry and fear can be a problem and get us, make us forget that we've been forgiven of our sins and that we're his and he's got us. Well, also something that can, can be a symptom of forgetting the gospel is weariness and well-doing. You know, we, we're called to love others and to minister to others, and sometimes that can be exhausting. People are difficult sometimes, and... Uh, they're difficult to love sometimes, and, and I'm difficult to love sometimes. And uh, we grow exhausted, and we're consumed kind of with that ministry, and we forget to re refresh ourselves in the Lord and to remember what he's done for us. When we, do, when we get weary in well-doing and we want to quit, we want to take a break from, from Christ and from the, the church, and it's because maybe we have forgotten to refresh ourselves in the gospel and remember what he's done for us. And then, lack of assurance caused by the accusations of the devil. Nobody speaks to you more than you do. You know, you've got a little voice in your head that talks to you all the time, and it, sometimes it uh, tells you different things. Uh, sometimes people's voice in their head tells them what a rotten person they are and that they aren't deserving of God's love and they must be the worst person in the world and not really a Christian. Sometimes the voice says the opposite. <laughs> See, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and you're great. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way as the old country song went. Some people, that little voice in their heads tells them that. They're, they're both wrong, obviously. They've forgotten. When you forget that, that Jesus has forgiven your sins, that you've been cleansed. It keeps you from either one of those extremes. That it's Jesus that has forgiven you of your sins. He, is, he has gone to the ultimate length to lay down his life to save us from our sins. It's not you, it's his work in you that forgives you. And you're not great because you needed a savior to come all the way from heaven to lay down his life for you that you might be saved. So it's not hard to be humble when you think about that. See? So the, the work, the, 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 the work of continuously remembering what Christ has done is important. It keeps us from falling into these pitfalls that bring discouragement and, and lack of perseverance in the Christian life. The answer is to keep looking at Christ for this reason, Paul says, or Peter says, for this reason. The answer is to look at Christ and his work on your behalf. Let that fuel your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and love. Now, there's also some ways, and I'm just quickly going to run through these from a book called How to Change by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. Sometimes when we have forgotten the gospel and uh, we may think, well, I'm a bit miserable in my Christianity, uh, we, we try different things. We, we run to 
some uh, golden oldies of, of wrong uh, belief and action. Uh, formalism. I'm just going to keep plugging in and going to church and going to church. But, the chur- but that, that formalism means that even though you're always there when the doors are open, it doesn't have an impact on your life away from church. You're just going through the motions. That's formalism. Church attendance, divorced from life. Or legalism. You really try to keep the law like we talked about before, and you find comfort in that law-keeping. It gives you a bit of self-righteousness and makes you feel good as long as you're maintaining the standard. But the problem is, of course, you can't maintain the standard and you will be completely discouraged before too long. Or mysticism and emotionalism. You see people who are constantly looking for a spiritual high. You know, they, they think, well, I just, need to, I just need to go and get excited about it. And they, they try to get pumped up you know, week after week, or, I mean, when I was a young Christian, my Christian life was like this. You know, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, it was an emotional roller coaster, and it was miserable. Some people don't do that, and that's why some people hop from church to church. They're just looking for a place that can get them jazzed up about the Lord searching for that spiritual high, or activism or monasticism. We're just going to pour ourselves into working against evil in the world or retreating from evil in the world. We're in the world, we're not of the world, but we have to engage the world with the gospel. Or biblicism, which is just accumulating for ourselves a lot of knowledge. You know, I'm not really happy in my Christian life, so I want to really pour myself into just getting to know everything I can about the scriptures. Now that's a not a, necessarily a bad thing. I want you to study your scriptures, but not for the purpose of finding pride in just your Bible knowledge and not really knowing the God of the Bible. Or what uh, they call psychologyism. I just need to be healed rather than redeemed. This is a big temptation in our day and time. Uh, we're always psychoanalyzing everybody and ourselves, and we need uh, to push the right buttons in order to find the answers. We need redemption is what we really need. We need that forgiveness from Christ. Or treating church as a so- social club, socialism. I'm, I'm happy as long as uh, you know, there's people in the church who I connect with and they're my peer group and, and um, we're happy. See, all, not, all of those things are not bad things, but when they become the focus for us, and not Christ and his work and his and Christ and the cross and the good news about what Jesus has done for us, when those things replace the gospel, we've got a problem. What we really need is a fresh heart connection with the Lord. And that's what, what verses 3 and 4 and 5 point us to. What Christ has done. How gracious he has been to us. Now finally, quickly, there's an eternal reward here. Be all the more diligent to confirm, uh, make it steadfast, make it firm in your, your calling and election. See, you're not in control of your calling or your election. That's something that God does. God elects, he's the one who chooses, and he's the one who calls us to himself. But what he's saying here is, if you do these things, if you 
remember the gospel and it motivates you to be virtuous, steadfast, godly, etc. Then that will confirm it to yourself. Your calling and election will be apparent because you can look at the fruit in your life. You're not unfruitful and ineffective. You will be fruitful. You will be effective. And that will confirm to you your election and calling. Make it firm and steadfast in your own mind and heart. And this talks about this eternal reward. There will be richly provided for you an abundant supply of an entrance into the eternal kingdom because we're resting upon Christ's finished work, not in our own work. May God renew us today as we refocus our, I want us to refocus our attention on Christ and having a relationship with Christ and, and reflecting upon what Christ has done for us and the forgiveness of sins that he has granted us and let that fuel our efforts to be virtuous, godly, steadfast, loving people. And I believe that will go a long ways towards transforming our own lives and God will use that to transform the lives of others. Here at this church, I know we've got a lot of visitors today, as you go back to your churches, God can begin a great revival with his people. We pray that that is so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would help us to be impressed by the gospel and motivated to make every effort to add these characteristics to our lives so that we could bear your family resemblance be your people, and that you would use that to make a difference in our world, to draw people to yourself as we share about the hope that we have within us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.